podcasting from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, known as the City of Bridges. This is Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, conversations of influence and change. I am your host, Christy Knights, C-suite executive coach, expert witness, psychotherapist, professional speaker, and best-selling author, the revolutionary leader in business and life. I am so excited to share with you my dear friend, Britt Warnick, today. She is a beautiful unsung hero, and by the end of this podcast, she will be a sung hero, loud and clear, in the area of domestic violence. Welcome, Britt. How are you today? I'm wonderful, and it's great to be here. I'm really excited to share my story. Thank you so much. So share with the audience a little background about yourself, what you like to do, how you came to what you do. Okay. Um, Well, I actually got really interested in psychology in school. Um, So I actually was starting to to do some work with our local RDVIC um, probably back in 2014, which is the Rape and Domestic Violence Information Center. And I was... Yeah, I was their prevention educator, so I actually, um, I had to uh, research and write and then teach in the community. I taught at WVU um, for sororities, too, and I taught at um, some other local schools like the beauty school. And then I also got into uh, retail sales, and uh, I try a lot of new things. I like to to do new things. I I teach Zumba. (laughs) I got my license for that. Just I know it seems random, but <laughs> no, um, no, exercise is key to mental well-being. Absolutely. It really, it really is. And I have learned that over the years. Um, sometimes if, you know, you feel really bad, you can just go for a walk or a run and it really helps a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you have been an educator for some time now. I have. Um I have uh, also, I, when I was in high school, I actually was an on-air radio personality. <laughs> so I, it was fun. It was the best job ever, I tell you. Um, I love radio and yeah. I was there for several years and I used to also get to write news stories there, read the stories. So it kind of goes back, it goes back um, a ways, I, I guess you could say. And I just like research. I do a lot of research. Uh, I have my own blog. Oh, do you? Um, yeah. Find your blog. Um, it's called Rev. And it's actually uh, a wellness type blog, but also more relatable to, um, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, we all change with experience. So I kind of have tended to change with that as well. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Good. But, well, that'll be great for people to check out your blog. Yeah, just search up. Uh, it's L I F E R E V V, and it's 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 a blog spot. So great, great. So share with us your story. Well, I actually had just gotten out of a bad relationship with my child's father, and I was trying to do uh, new things for myself. And I had always wanted to try martial arts. <laughs> so I uh, went to the local martial arts place and, where I met my soon-to-become abuser. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, just trying to do something new for myself um, to get to a different place. And it turned out um, to be that I would meet the person who very well almost, you know, took my life 
yeah. from me at the end of all of it. Certainly what, not what you had intended to with martial arts. Oh, absolutely not. And honest, and to be quite honest, I was not even attracted to this person at all at first, mm-hmm. okay. um, which should go to show you, you know, how manipulative uh, predators can be um, in the way they uh, target their victims, um, especially, you know, um, when they're trying to control people mm-hmm. and th- through through certain methodology you know, you can go through that and the ways they do that for days, <laughs> but it's essentially, it's essentially almost like a brainwashing mm-hmm. and it certainly becomes that way after a while. And it's very subtle in the way they do it. Yes. And I think that's a really interesting point. Oftentimes when I counsel clients who have been through domestic violence, they will come in with such shame because they feel like they shouldn't mm-hmm. be coming. Like, how mm-hmm. did they not know? So although it would take us a long time to go through all of those markers, is there just a few that you could share with us as you look back in hindsight? Yeah, um, the number one red flag actually is um, these people will try to basically insert themselves into your life as soon as possible. A lot of them will want to jump into relationships. Um, they will try to, to actually use pregnancy, mm. um, which, you know, my ex actually had tried to do with me um, mm. without my knowledge is the key. <laughs> so, and I'm not going to go into the details of how that would happen, but it can happen. Mm-hmm. And it can be men that perpetrate this. And I've, it's not just me. I've, I have talked to several people since then that, that they have um, shared with me um, personally that that had happened to them as well. Um, thankfully, I never had a child with this person. But um, it was not for lack of, you know, abuse uh, um, to, to gain control that way yes. um, be, through a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the child can be used as a catalyst for control as well. Okay. So there's almost um, a grooming method that happens mm-hmm. is what I'm hearing you say. Is that correct? There is. Um, they come into your life. Basically, you're the most wonderful person in the world. They've never met anybody like you. You, you know, you're perfect. You're on a pedestal. And then slowly, slowly, they start to break you down using that. Um, And the way that I noticed my ex doing it was, you know, he was, I would be perfectly fine and he would come over and he would say, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, why? He says, well, you seem off today or or, you seem like something's wrong. And and then eventually he was doing this every day and to the point where I started to think, maybe there is something wrong with me. And then I would thought about it a while and then I realized what was happening. And this is what they refer to as gaslighting, you know, in psychology terms um, where they create this false um, reality. So you're relying on them and not your own perceptions. And so that's how they start to control you. It's a very, very gradual breakdown. Mm -hmm. And since you trust this person so much because in their eyes, you're this wonderful person. Well, if this person who thinks you're so wonderful is starting to doubt you, then that almost makes you doubt yourself. Yes. 
Um, and that is, that is actually the grooming begins the grooming process um, and how people begin to doubt themselves and trust more um, and rely more on the abuser. Mm-hmm. And that's you, what happened to me. Ah, that's what I was going to ask you. Um, can you recall when that began to happen to you? Oh, he started it almost, almost immediately. And I did not catch on for a few weeks. But like I said, I studied psychology. Mm-hmm. And when I started to doubt myself um, is when it clicked. I mean, he did this to me for weeks before I even... And I taught prevention ed at this time. So, I mean, even as a prevention educator, knowing um, red flags and things to look for until you really get in the situation, you cannot understand how these victims are chosen, how they're groomed, and how they're eventually broken down. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, the, yeah, so it took, a, it, took, it took me a few weeks to figure it out. But, you know, so I confronted him about it and he said it would stop. But um, that was just the beginning of things things to come, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to confront him. What led you, just to backtrack a moment, what led you into prevention education? Um, Things that had happened um, with my child's father, my ex. Ah, um, Um, we, we kind of have the same story with that. He, he was actually a police officer and mm-hmm. I don't want to get into that too much, um, yeah. right now, but yeah, he, uh, and I had never experienced these things before. And, um, so I've been researching trauma a lot and it's actually very common for trauma survivors of domestic violence to continue into, um, yeah. the same or into new relationships of, um, control and domestic violence it's very common like it raises statistically like mm-hmm. something significant 55 percent almost and what causes that pattern um well if you go back if you go and research trauma um sometimes it, it comes about in childhood uh, um mm-hmm. if that's the only thing you know um you're more likely to put up with things that other people would not put up with And so that leads you to continue in a relationship, whereas, you know, a person that hadn't been affected by trauma before would not put up with those certain kinds of behaviors from other people uh, because their self-esteem isn't compromised or has not been compromised by trauma. Yes, that makes sense. So as he began to to groom you and you confronted him, um, it sounds like he took accountability in that moment and said he would change. Yes. um, Mm But he did not. <laughs> they always, that's the one thing, another red flag. They're always sorry afterwards. And then that's where we get into, you know, the wheel of abuse, the cycle of abuse. It's, an, I mean, it's, it's such a patterned abuse cycle that it's an actual wheel, you know, that they use to teach um, victims and survivors of domestic violence or maybe even families of survivors or non survivors. So. Are you able to take us through that wheel briefly um, or where to find it? Yes, uh, you could, you can get on the national uh, hotline to end domestic violence. I think it's on their website. Um, however, uh, we do, we always advocate um, and they'll, they'll tell you on the website because some, some abusers do monitor um, their, you know, their significant others web activity. Yes. You can click, there's a button you can click that'll immediately take you off the website. Um, so we always, you know, 
be wow. careful in what you're researching. If you're, if you happen to be a listener right now, um, or, um, in the future of things like that, because, um, it can cause an issue uh, if they, if the, if the abuser, yes. you know, knows what's going on, but basically the cycle is, um, I don't have it in front of me, but, but I pretty know, I know it pretty well. Uh, and there's a several different, uh, several different versions of it, mm-hmm. but there's a cycle of grooming and like, I guess what you could say, cloud nine romance. Then there's like um, a strain cycle. Then there's the abuse. Then there's a sorry period. And then it goes back to everything's fine. And then things start to go bad again. Then there's the abuse cycle. Then there's the apology and it's just like, it's, it's just on and on and on that way. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. So during this time, were you experiencing anything like anxiety or depression? Like how were you coping with this stressor? Um, well, I actually came from a home where I, I had had those traumatic experiences Um a lot of the stuff that was going on, like I said, how trauma affects, you know, what thing, what things people will put up with. And it definitely affected the way I put up with things. And I'll never forget, um, you know, our relationship was always on and off because I would, I would break up with him seeing what he was doing. And then he would always somehow come back around. And something that stuck out to me was, you know, he got in a screaming match with me at his place of work while he was working. And I didn't even know he had worked there. I just had went out to eat one night with another um, friend of mine who happens to be male. And it was so bad. This, my friend actually was recording him screaming at me. And like, I'm just sitting here, like nothing's, you know, this is just normal to me. Like I didn't even think like, this is ridiculous to be in here. And, you know, his manager didn't stop him. No oh. one stopped them. Um, and when he found out my friend was recording, he just took his phone from him <laughs> oh and, and deleted them and got it in this person's phone. This is the kind of violations of, you know, they have no personal boundaries or, or, or any kind of concept of personal space of another person. Um, because a lot of people that are abusers tend to be uh, they have, they tend to have what I guess would be a cluster B personality disorder, like antisocial personality mm-hmm. disorder, um, or very high on the narcissistic spectrum scale, things like that. And, um, so a lot of abusers, um, in my research anyways, I've tend to found that they have these correlated, mm-hmm. um, issues, uh, and in fact, themselves probably have been abused either as children, mostly as children. Mm-hmm. Um, and my ex was certainly abused as a child. Um, okay. And he was uh, also in and out of uh, the court system or excuse me, the uh, prison system, even as a juvenile, which I found out later on, you know, like, they never tell you these things to begin with, you know, people say, why would you get with somebody like that? Well, they're not like that when you first know them. They're just not. And that's part of the grooming. So that is exactly right. They don't want to share those things that would push you away. So of course they're not going to tell you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. That must've been terrifying to be sitting there being screamed at. And yet you think it's normal. You don't see it as 
you know, as mm-hmm. bad as what other people were seeing it. I think that really lends itself to what happens when you're in that type of relationship and that level of numbness that you that you go to. Oh, it really is. And that it goes back to um, you know, the gaslighting and then um, you know, people that when you when you're re- you're reacting you're reacting to crazy. I mean, so you can say these people are crazy or whatever, but a lot of the reactions are normal mm-hmm. to the way that they're being treated in these um, these crazy making behaviors. And they are legitimately behaviors by the abuser to elicit these responses. Right. I mean, they're 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 tactful in how they do it, and they know what will happen. So, you know. Um, while, while you're just defending yourself, everyone else could be looking at you like what's going on or Mm -hmm. this isn't normal. And you're just, you're just basically, you know, not so caught up in what's going on. And, and there's been so much going on that you just don't even know anymore. Yes. At what point did you feel like, uh, this is much worse. This is out of control. Uh, actually, like early on, I actually mm-hmm. had broken up with him because of what, when I was uh, telling you earlier about the gaslighting he was doing in the original, um, about him, you know, asking me what was wrong. Yes. And I, I had decided to end it at that point and then had gotten, you know, he kept coming back around and then would, okay. would, um, would not leave to the point where, you know, he was in that, you know, I'm sorry, this, this, and this you know, the sorry phase. And it's very easy to get caught up in that um, and to accept them back. Yes. Especially once they have you um, uh, thinking that, you know, they're your soulmate or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's some of the language that's used from what I'm gathering. It is. It is. It is definitely. Okay. And then from there, how did it continue to escalate? Um, the first time he actually physically abused me, um, it was Mother's Day mm. of 2015. And he had been out all night drinking, came home intoxicated. And I had found on his, I guess his iPad was linked to his phone and I had been looking for a reason to get away from him. So I looked on his iPad. Well, he had deleted on his phone, this message where he was actually trying to um, get into um, a real, I don't know how to put this (laughs) sexual relations, (laughs) I guess with, with with one, he was actually a manager at the time and it was um, one of his workers, which Uh is, which is actually um, a vi- is, is a violation you, because of you know the power his power over them, and so you can't consent to somebody in a position of power over you, as well. So I mean that could be even broken down and construed that way. But I saw this and I used it as a reason to get away. And um, he was very, uh, you know, I I, conf- he, I confronted him about it when he had woke up because he had passed out from drinking and I, I left my own apartment. It was mother's day. I mean, it just ruined my whole day and it turned into a complete crazy show, but I ended up back at my house Okay. and an argument ensued to where he had slammed me to the ground. And I actually got a chest wall contusion from that. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, 
And I remember that night I ran into the bedroom and screamed as loud as I could because I knew the neighbor downstairs would hear me. And it says in the police report, she was so scared. <laughs> she she did call the police. Okay. And um, I kept trying to leave out the door to run to a different neighbor's house. And I finally was able to leave. And I had no shoes on. I was in my pajamas and I ran anyways. And I remember him yelling at out me um, out at me that if I didn't come back, I was going to be arrested and he was going to call the police. And he did. Uh-huh. And the police were on his side. Oh, my goodness. He, uh, they, they advised him while I'm at the hospital, ER, getting checked for this chest wall contusion. I actually had thought my ribs were broken oh. but um, because it hurts so bad. Yeah. Um, and I was terrified. He basically, uh, his, they didn't even hardly take my report. They took his report. Mm. And then because uh, this is where this goes back in with my ex who was a cop, my child's father, his friends actually were the ones that showed up and they advised him to get a restraining order against me, oh, which, wow. which was granted. So see how they used the court system to get at you and to get you in a particular place as well, because I had to go to that hearing. So what I did was after I found that out, I actually went and I got a restraining order against him. So we had restraining orders against each other. And then in the court, um, you know, he's like claiming he's so afraid and I did this and I did that, which was false. And there was no evidence of that. Um, The prosecutor even at the time had known him because of his previous domestic violence issues in within the county. And so she knew for a fact that it wasn't me. And she told me to that effect. And she said, if it hadn't, if it hadn't been for her knowing who he was, it looked like I was the instigator. I mean, and so I could have been arrested. And I, I say to that, how many women does this actually happen to, or even, you know, men and, um, in other, you know, the L, especially the LGBT communities as well, this happens. Um, right. So, I mean, how many people are subject to this, the the courts and the um, the way they're abused? So, he actually tried to get it dropped. Okay. And I said, absolutely not. I said that this person will not leave me alone. So then he became so belligerent as to the point the judge almost had him thrown out of family court if he said another word. Okay. Um, so a six-month period was granted, and then, of course, I ended up seeing him out after one of my fashion shows, and so then it, ens- it ensued all over again. But that that was the point in which he had become physical, because not only was he, um, did I get the chest wall contusion, He had, that was the first time he had choked me, and he did it two or three times, and he's his martial arts instructor. So, and he also outweighed me by a hundred pounds. So, I mean, it's just, it was just unbelievable because I had never, you know, I was scared. Yeah, and you're doing you can to get out. You're doing everything you can to get Mm -hmm. out. And And when I left, I was blamed. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How did that affect your, your emotions? How did you feel about that? I actually have zero trust in the law, uh, in this justice system, and it has been based on the past five years of, of experience. I have lost all faith in the justice system. Yeah. 
Um, I've lost faith in the police, you know, police being able to help you at all because they hadn't been everything that happened to me. He had taken my phone or, um, you know, how am I supposed to call for help when you don't have a phone to call for help? Right. Um, right. Then you scream to the neighbor and it doesn't matter anyways, what you do. Um, you know, it, he was so, he was so convincing. I mean, this is a man who had, I found out later been to prison and actually married his parole officer. Oh my gosh. This is the kind of manipulation we're looking at here. (laughs) Um, To convince a person who's supposedly trained in, in, you know, picking up on, I mean, but look at me as a prevention educator as well. I mean, this is just individuals who are, they know how to manipulate people and they do it very well and they do it knowingly. They do it on purpose. It's very um, purposeful the way that they do things and they know what exactly what they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. There's, there's actually a YouTube um, Ted talks about a lady who had to, and I can't remember her name. I wish I could, so you could go up and, Maybe you could Google it. Um, It was a TED Talks. And she actually worked with these abusers. um, And since she wasn't allowed to tell on them, they would, you know, tell her everything. And what she gathered from these people is they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They know the relationship is unfair. Mm -hmm. They believe the women are possessions. Mm -hmm. um, And they believe that they're entitled to what they're getting from these people and they also know exactly what they're doing. And I think that's why homicide rates are so high when the, um, you know, when the, the, uh, the victims are, are leaving mm-hmm. and, and the uh, abuser starts to feel out of control. They tend to what, uh, you know, step up the game, I guess, or even just decide, well, I'm going to end their life because they're just, um, they're just a possession to these people and they absolutely know exactly what they're doing and that it's not fair and that it's not. And they, they make them these, they make the women love them. It's like the key to getting, it's the key to everything is making these people fall in love with them. And these people, you know, the abusers have actually said this and the woman who did the research and the Ted talks, you know, she went on about that. So okay. absolutely. These are not, you know, psychopaths or crazy people. They, you know, they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So I would love to be able to say that the story was over and you rose from there, but share with us what happened next. <laughs> um, well, the grooming period started again <laughs> yeah. after that six months, you know, and, uh, but at the, then at that time, um, he had gotten into drugs badly, un- unbeknownst to me, because he was hiding it for the longest time, mm-hmm. and he would not go away. Like you could not get him to go away. Okay. And I was lonely. And at that point, um, there is a certain brainwashing, almost like a stock—I guess it would be Stockholm syndrome—you know, where the victim falls in love with the kidnapper. <laughs> almost, it's it's very common. Um, the way they manipulate and brainwash women. And then that's why when they ask women, why didn't you just leave? You know, sometimes they can't leave because sometimes they love them. Sometimes financially they can't leave. Sometimes they have kids. And also, like I said, homicide rates rise 80% when you leave. We, um, 
we would never tell a victim to just up and leave an abuser. And that's how actually uh, what happened to me happened, <laughs> even when I knew better. <laughs> yeah. So at so. this point, you still felt connected to him. You still felt that you loved him and was hoping that things had changed and you could have a relationship. It was more the point where I thought at this point, I wasn't going to be able, able to ever escape him. And so I was trying to make the relationship as normal as I could on my end. I see. Okay. Um, Because it seemed to me like he was never going to go away and I couldn't even, I could not get him to leave me alone. Mm -hmm. Um, But the abuse got really bad after that. And I'm talking like almost daily. I was um, choked out. Um, one Christmas I was kicked in the head with a door cause he said he was going to leave me. And so I, he had the door open, putting his bags outside. I put one of his bags outside. He came and just literally kicked the door into my head as hard as he could and knocked me out. Wow. Um, things like this happened a lot to me. Um, you know, there was sexual abuse, financial abuse, physical, psychological, emotional always going on and here's me trying to hide it because I couldn't get rid of him and I was scared so I'm trying to make it look as normal as I can Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm failing because you cannot make a normal situation out of somebody that is just so abusive Um, especially in the small town that I live in people were actually calling my mother and saying they were worried for my life at this point. And at this point, you have a, a child as well. I did have, yes, I had a child, but it wasn't with him. Um, right. But I had custody of my yeah. child. But what, I, but what was funny is he, he, would nev- he never did these things in front of my child, yeah. which I'm thankful for. And if I ever felt, you know, if I ever felt my child was in danger, yes. um, like I said, uh, at the point where he, at the point where that happened at Christmas, I actually had went to the authorities and filed an EPO, and he fled to Indiana, where he's actually from. Okay. So he up and left immediately. I mean, I didn't even know where he went. Um, That's interesting. You know, as part of the grooming, is he never did it in front of your child? No, he did not. That's very intentional. There it was. Well, which I am grateful for because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I was specifically I would watch him very closely whenever he was around my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. um, I had my mother watch my child a lot at this point, also. Yes. Um, and I had a business to run at the time too. Um, wow. so I was in the business a lot, and so I just. You know, if I I had that help, I'm so glad I had that help from my family mm-hmm. um, at the time. So what's interesting, though, is uh, he eventually comes back from Indiana and has no place to live. And so mm-hmm. he's living in my store. And I had to install a camera when I left and came home to make sure, you know, he wasn't doing anything in my store when I wasn't there. So, and the camera hooked to my phone, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just a, cra- I mean, it, I almost want to, I almost want to say it's, it's a lifetime network movie series or series, you know? Right. Right. I mean, it could very well become one. <laughs> he was living in your store and you yeah. felt 
you needed to obviously still monitor him. Mm-hmm. How long did you live in the store? Um, basically, from the time I opened it till the time I, I the reason I actually closed my store. And I told him it was because um, I didn't have the money to keep it open. But the real reason I closed the store was because he would not leave the store. <laughs> I could not get him out of it. Okay. He wouldn't leave. Yeah. So I said, and, and I told my, this to my mother. And, you know, she, she, so she knows what was going on. And, you know, the whole day I, I, I cried the entire day. I had to move out of the store. And, of course, he's in there helping me move. And then at that point, he moved back to Morgantown and then starts sponging off of his friends uh, for a place to live. Yes. So, um, but he's still calling me. I mean, texting me, emailing me. One night he called me and I am not even exaggerating. The call log said 117 times in like the period of a few hours. Oh my goodness. Not just calling, but using Facebook. emailing, emailing, you know, um, and at this point we were not together. Okay. And Mm -hmm. for three months then after that, we were not. Okay. And then for some reason, um, you know, you go through a lot after you've been through the trauma of that and you almost start to, it, it seems, it seems to start to become normal. Um, and I remember one night I had just been, I got in a fight with either friends or family. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up going to his house and not being able to leave Uh, for three days, two days. On the third morning, I was trying to leave. And he had found... What made you... Let me stop you real quick. What made you decide to go to his home? Because I think that's a piece that you've had to really kind of repeat multiple times Mm -hmm. to people. Right. Oh yeah, I still am. <laughs> As I said in the media, this is kind of where you got some heat, which is very sad to me. Mm-hmm. But can you? It, it, yes, it all goes back to you know why? Why do you go back? Or, or why'd you go back to him? You know, I mean, at this point, I don't feel like I ever left him because yeah. he was so he was stalk he stalked me to a, an establishment I was at in Kingwood and they kicked him out of it. I mean, he was always texting, calling. It didn't even seem like we weren't together even when we weren't because he never left me alone. Yes. So the first person I thought of to go to, you know, um, to get away was him. I, I don't, I couldn't tell you why. Um, honestly, it's, it's part of the brainwashing and then manipulating them. They want, they want you to be that close to them. And in a way, he's he's always in my life. He never left. He and it's kind of it's called um I for now I forget the term. I thought of it too fast. It's okay. It's it's like a forced um forced um intimacy is what it's okay. called. Mm-hmm. So um Yeah, and you know, you know, really he was clearly very loyal. It was oh, loyalty, but it was loyal. He and mm-hmm. So there's part of the brain, I'm sure, that responds to that loyalty, um, even if it's unhealthy, right? Oh, oh, yes. And it was extremely, extremely dysfunctional. Okay. Um, so you're there and you can't leave. I, does that mean he wasn't, wouldn't let you leave? or Pretty much. Okay. Um, the morning that I left, he got on my phone to, quote, call his work, which was not true. 
because mm-hmm. he took my phone in the other room. So I guess he starts going through text messages and he sees a text that he didn't like and comes in the bedroom and throws it phone at me and starts accusing me of cheating on him. And I'm like, we're not even dating and you've been seeing some other girl. I'm like, Oh my Lord. I knew I sn- see. I knew as soon as he took my phone, I just remember thinking, Oh God, here it comes. <laughs> yeah. um, and it did. And that morning is the morning that he tried to kill me. How terrifying. I can't even imagine. Um, it, it really was. I, I never thought as much as he had done to me, uh, that he would ever hit me like that. But um, it started out, uh, he he punched me in the mouth and choked me. Then he threw my things in the living room and told me to leave while at the same time he had hidden my car keys. Mm. So when I finally found my car keys, he does a 180 and wants me to stay. He's crying because I'm bleeding, even though he caused the bleeding in my mouth. I mean, I've never, I never, you never really know this until you're living in it. I mean, for somebody to punch you in the mouth and then apologize that you're bleeding. I mean, that's just insane. That's crazy making behaviors. And, um, what actually happened was he got released the week before trial because the judge he was supposed to be on GPS home confinement. Yes. Well, he was homeless. And so the judge removed that stipulation for a week. He stalked me on social media and the night before trial, he actually calls me and he's drunk and admitting to everything he did. Um, admitting to how he was going to lie in court. He was crying and apologizing. And then the real reason for all this comes out, finally, he wants me to meet him. Oh, gosh. Okay. And I said, absolutely not. And at the same time, I'm texting the prosecutor where he's at. And so then he was then picked up for not only um, violating a bond, but for witness tampering. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, I have his actual, con- everything confessed on, re- on a, it was recorded. I've got about 80 minutes of it. Wow. And that even goes back to him, to what happened that night where they thought it was my fault. Yes. Um, That Mother's Day I was talking about, he even admits that he was lying then. Wow. How did it feel to hear him say all of those things? (laughs) To have it recorded is the best feeling in the world because, you know, you, you really get so caught up and you really think, well, what did I do? And what is my part in it? If I have them actually admit that it wasn't you. And this doesn't happen for everyone. This is a rare occasion Mm -hmm. to have somebody admit that it was them and um, to have it on recording so that other people, you know, the court heard that. And uh, while it is, it's sealed after his plea bargain that's now sealed, I still have the recording, which belongs to me. So it can't be used in court. However, that recording is mine. So, um, you know, I would never use it in a way to be malicious or vindictive, but, um, you know, people, when people wonder what I did, well, here's this recording that says I did absolutely nothing. And the day, the day that I was almost killed, all I said to him was he would never change. He headbutted me. I then fell backwards and hit my head, and he crawled on top of me and began pummeling my face. 
gosh. And this was two weeks before I was supposed to be walking in um in the uh um oh what was that? The fashion alley yeah. show, the first fashion alley. Right. Um and uh so you know, I think he knew this. It almost seemed like it was vindictive. But when I asked him, did you mean, you know, in this recording that I have him? Yes. He says he meant to kill me. Wow. Um, and I remember I had put, I don't remember being hit. Like, I don't remember feeling the hits. I do remember putting my arm up around my the right side of my face. Yes. And he pulled my hands down and started to hit me again. And it, you know, he's... The, this this whole time screaming like how do you feel now and oh, and how look look at you now you're nothing and um and a voice inside my head said very clearly speak up now or he's going to kill you mm-hmm. okay and so I started talking and was able to bring him out of that rage at that point and he stopped oh my goodness and uh, I totally believe it was divine intervention at this point because. Um, I was very severely um, beaten in the face at the time I have, I had, um, I think I had a traumatic brain injury. I had um, a concussion, post-concussion syndrome afterwards. And I also had, uh, I've, I have a plate in my eye. He knocked out the bottom floor of orbital floor of my eye socket. Um, How did you, how did you get away that day? I have, I'm telling you divine intervention. Uh, he, when he stopped beating me, I crawled over to the door and I said, I'm really messed up. I need to call 911. He would not allow me to call 911, but he said he would take me. So he said, you're not to leave the house. I got to change my pants. So I'm sitting there waiting. He's in the room forever and ever. And you know, I, in my head, I thought, Oh my God, what if he's getting a knife? So I actually tried to leave three or four times and he came out and had stopped me from doing so. And finally, um, finally he took me to the hospital and, you know, he tested me and said, you need to tell them it was me. Well, I knew better than to say that, (laughs) to say that at this point, I said, I'm not going to tell them that anything. I said, I just need help. So then when I got there, I ended up telling them what happened and I told them to specifically call state police so that, you know, my ex's county police was not involved. And then, um, from, from there he, he ran and hid and he actually texted me all day from his neighbor's phone while I'm in the hospital. Wow. That's unbelievable. That level Mm -hmm. of that personality disorder. Oh Yeah. I've got, I got the last time I heard from him, he is in prison and called me on my birthday to wish me happy birthday. (laughs) So needless to say, uh, the number was changed and he tried to get a hold of me again Mm -hmm. in through email and I never responded. So he's probably up for parole, I think in December, um, because it's been, he got two to 10. Okay. And uh, the, the minimum would be two, in which he would be up for parole. I think that he served forty percent of the sentence, or mm-hmm. I forget exactly what the formula is, but whatever it was, we we calculated it out to be around December of this year. So we're not sure what's going to happen, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I'm not afraid at this point. 
Wow. So something that you did that I found so, so heroic um, and just really made me fall in love with you and who you are and your level of resilience is you became very public about it. Oh, yes. <laughs> you shared it on social media from the time you were in the hospital through the healing journey. What gave yeah. you strength to be able to do that? Well, actually, um, the hospital post was from my sister because she was so mad and we couldn't find him. Yeah. She posted it um, to for people to share so we could find him. But I knew where he was because he was calling me from his neighbor's phone. Right. Um, but nobody would listen to me um, or let me answer the phone and record it. Wow. But um, when you get... Unfortunately, when you learn about these people, you learn them. You get to know them yes. and how they react. Mm-hmm. I knew he was going to call me at some point, but um, I was very angry okay. from having to miss um, that fashion event yes. that I was looking forward to. And so I became public about it. And I remember saying, if you don't think this can happen to you, mm-hmm. think again, because I never thought it would happen to me. Even when it was happening to me, I didn't really think it would happen to me. <laughs> I know that sounds very hard to understand, but this is a very real common thing. I mean, one out of three women experience this worldwide, and it's probably even more than that at this yeah. point. Yeah. What but, was the benefit for you to be so public about it? Um, my main point was... Um, like I said before, uh, if you hide something, you you can't acknowledge there's a problem unless you know that it's going on. And it's such a taboo subject and people still don't believe it happens. And there's so much victim blaming. Yes. I mean, um, there was a lot of good with sharing that post, but I also took a lot of criticism. Well, you know, why didn't she leave or what did she do to provoke that? Like it was my fault or I deserve to be beaten to death for whatever heinous crime I, I did against him, you know, um, which was nothing. I had done nothing. And he admits in the tape, all I said was you're never going to change. And I was leaving at that point. And he, you know, thinking he, that he owned me felt he could take my life at that point. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I thought if I'm going, to, I wanted something good to come out of something so bad. And the only way to do that is to make people realize around me mm-hmm. that know me how very prevalent and how very real this problem actually is and how it can happen to anyone. You know, there is no social background there's no socioeconomic status educational racial and uh, or sexual orientation it's not bias it happens to it can happen to anybody Mm -hmm. and I wanted that message to come across because I was just done with the victim blaming you Mm -hmm. know and uh and done with people thinking that doesn't happen and, and you know women aren't treated this way and Mm-hmm. Um, it is true there are women abusers, but most of them, um, 90% of perpetrators, even when the victim is a male, or it's even higher than 90, I think at this point, okay. statistically, and this is according to the FBI crime report, yes. um, the, the, the perpetrators are male, regardless of 
sexual or orientation or sex, if it's a male or female, usually the perpetrator is male okay. over 90% of the time. Um, so it's not like we're hating on men or we hate men or we think all men are abusers because that's not the actual case. Yeah. There's a very small percentage of men who are like this. Okay. Um, but for some reason, when you go, when you speak about these things, other men tend to become defensive and think they're being thrown into that category. And that is not what, mm-hmm. you know, we intend at all because we know not all men are like this. In fact, most of them are not. Yes. Um, it's usually the same perpetrators committing these crimes over and over and over again that creates the high statistic um, of, of victims, but a low statistic of abusers. Mm-hmm. So share with us, you know, as we begin to wrap up, share with us the rise. Share with us how you've <laughs> been doing since then. Um, well, I have had, because of that, and, um, you know, I actually got a response, I guess, Dr. Shelley Hipsky from Inspiring Lives Magazine and um, the Global Sisterhood, I think um, they do a lot yes. with this as well, had found me through this viral post. So it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I began speaking out. Um, I have um, a couple of magazine articles Right. I've written in, I, I had started, um, you know, I have my own nonprofit. I have two of them actually. Um, one, um, I wanted to prove that just because bad things happen to you, you can still live the life that you're destined to live and do things that you love to do. And I wanted to, to be an example of that, I guess. Yes. to other people going through the same thing that, you know, you, you can get through all this and you can overcome it and eventually you can get back to um, some semblance of what, you know, um, or even more a successful life. Yeah. Can you share with us the two nonprofits? Um, one of them is called DV Free um, mm-hmm. that I started as domestic violence. Um, freedom is freedom renewed by empowering education and we advocate uh, and use education um, to help empower uh, survivors. We don't we don't say victims, and you know because honestly, people are survivors. You're right. surviving this thing. Mm-hmm. You're here. <laughs> You've already made it. <laughs> um, unfortunately, some people don't have a voice, so we w- we like to become the voice that that cannot be heard mm-hmm. for these women as well. Um, the other one's a local nonprofit that I do. Um, it's called Preston County Sprouts. Um, and we basically try to help, uh, the community, um, in my local area. What we do with Sprout is, uh, raise funds and, um, we work with other nonprofits and businesses mm-hmm. and sponsorship for certain things. Um, a lot of it we do with education. Um, we raise money for things that are needed around the area to help the, to help the, um, the economy and the, and tourism in West Virginia and, uh, volunteering and things like that. Great. Great. So are there, is there any other part of your story that you wanted to make sure you shared today before we go? It's very hard to, like I said, it's hard. It's hard. (laughs) It's not easy to overcome 
things. Uh, there are days that, you know, you remember, you remember what happened, but, but that doesn't, you know, you don't have to let that define who you are. Um, it's just a part of who you are. And I, I honestly would not be who I am today if I hadn't faced these adversities and learned what I learned from these things. I wouldn't be able to help other people. So I, I try to take whatever is good in any situation and turn or uh, turn anything bad into the good and, and focus on, on the positive. And um, I have actually seen a huge just life changing effect because of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's hard. Um, and sometimes you have to take the good with the bad. There's still a lot of victim blaming out there. I've had people say things about me that don't even know me. Um, but, you know, what people think of me is none of my business. <laughs> so I can only control me and the what I choose to do. And I choose to live a, a full life and a life that I love for me and for my son. Wonderful. So if someone would like to get a hold of you for your resources or just to have your support, how can they reach you? Um, you can actually get, um, there's a Facebook page. We have uh, DV free. Um, or you could, uh, honestly, if you want to directly message me, um, you can email me, um, at my first name dot my last name at gmail.com. So that would be, I don't know if you want me to spell it or not. Um, uh, yes. B R I, oh, sorry, B and then at gmail.com and just message me directly and I'll be happy to answer any questions or offer what support that I can, you know, or you can look us up on Facebook or Instagram. We're also on there as well. Um, you can message us on those as well. Very good. Well, thank you so much today, Brett, for joining us and sharing your story. You are clearly a hero. Thank you, Christy. Yes, you thank so you so much. Many with your courage and your resilience. So I thank you for being on our show. Well, thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed this very much and definitely am honored to be a part of this. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, conversations of influence and change. Each show, we bring you a guest of revolutionary influence by living a life of nobility, courage, and authenticity. To meet other Knights of the Round Table or to be a guest on this show, go to christyknights.com. Join us next week as we cross the bridge to meet the next night to join the round table of revolutionary leaders of influence and change. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>